Rose, and I will be reading today's scripture. We'll be looking at the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of the Lord. So I begin with a, I think, a perhaps for some controversial statement that could easily be taken out of context, but I ask that you will not do that and hear it in context. Here's the statement. The gospel is not about morality. The gospel is about transformation. Now again, take it in context. Of course the gospel calls us to righteous living. But if that's all the gospel did, it would be another code of ethics right alongside many others. Many of which are very similar to the scriptures themselves, the Christian tradition. But the gospel gives us a different message. Actually, since the days of the Enlightenment in Western civilization, Christianity has essentially been assigned to a group of moral codes. And basically, the Enlightenment approach has been, well, Jesus was really good. Take a look at the teachings of Jesus. Now, someone you might not think of as a grand philosopher in the history of moral philosophy, um, made this very popular. As a matter of fact, he was one of our former presidents, and his name was Thomas Jefferson. So what Thomas Jefferson did is he took the New Testament and he basically extracted all the things except for the so-called moral teachings of Jesus. And he said, this is universal. Follow this code of ethics. That message did not come from Jesus, and it did not come from the apostles. 
you will never anywhere in the scriptures get anything remotely similar to that. That is not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about redemption or salvation from sin. It's that we're in a heap of trouble and our sin not only weighs us down but destroys us. And God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to deliver us from that awful condition. And of course, once we understand our inheritance and experience the deliverance, we live lives that reflect the message of Jesus Christ. And it is a high code of morality. But the gospel is not about morality. It's about transformation. It's about a change of perspective. It's about, as John has said in John chapter 3, verse 16, it's about a new birth. And that's the way Peter begins in the first epistle. Let me read you words that weren't a part of our passage. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's the first statement concerning what the gospel is all about. We have been given the opportunity to literally be reborn. Once things were this way, and now things are a different way. Example, I was not adopted. My parents um, were with me throughout my entire life. I knew who they were. I look like them. I act like them. For better or for worse, sometimes they thought for worse. But I was their child. On the other hand, I grew up with people who were adopted into a family for whatever reason, either because of the death of their natural parents or because their parents couldn't keep them or any number of other reasons, they were taken in by a family. Now, before they were adopted into that family, you could say that they were treated like the parents' children, like a son or a daughter. But you see, the reality is they really weren't the son or the daughter. Not legally, until papers were signed and everything was sealed, and then for the first time legally, they had an inheritance they never had before. They had the inheritance that was delivered to them from those new parents. They were, shall we say, rebirthed into a new family with a new inheritance. That's what the epistle of Hebrew tells us straight up front. There is a new birth, and with that new birth, there is an inheritance. Verse 4, you have been born into this and into a, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Translation, your inheritance is eternal. Your inheritance 
because of the new birth, is, is eternal life. You never knew it before. You weren't born into eternal life. Eternal life was not automatic. You stepped into this new life through a new birth and you received a new inheritance. There's something else about this new inheritance. I suppose it's possible for a child who's been adopted to worry that their parents would get rid of them. Especially if they remember the first time their parents got rid of them. They may be concerned that their parents would walk out and they wouldn't have an inheritance. They would be renounced. But here's an assurance that's given to us in 1 Peter. The assurance is this. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded. Shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this, we greatly rejoice. This inheritance, this adoption, this new birth is permanent. It can't be taken away from you. Trials and tribulations cannot destroy it. Death cannot touch it. No matter what comes into your life, this inheritance is yours forever because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. It's so much better than moralism. It's good news. A third thing that this gospel, this good news does is that it gives us a new perspective. First, we have a new birth and we have a new inheritance and then we have a new security and we have a, a new perspective. In all of this, Peter says, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that they will be, they will prove your genuineness of faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise and glory and honor when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed. A new perspective. It is this. We shouldn't wonder why there are trials. We shouldn't be perplexed by suffering. Why is he inserting this at the beginning of the epistle? A very simple reason. These people had already suffered. They were also a very, very minority community. And more suffering, if we have the chronology of Peter correctly, is yet to come. 
And he's saying to them, it makes no difference how difficult it is, how much hardship you endure. You have been given an inheritance, so it ought to change your perspective. You ought to see everything differently, including your physical and your spiritual pain. The whole process, says Peter, God is using to refine you like pure gold. It's natural for us to recoil from persecution, from pain. And I know we will and we do. But if we can have a new perspective on pain and suffering, tribulation and trial, it will do us a world of good. Let me add something that Peter does not say, but I think is scriptural. Part of the pain and suffering that people face in this present world is the suffering of doubt. It's the suffering that comes that pushes you to the precipice of unbelief. It's the thing that squashes your faith until it feels like there's nothing left. And all that's there is doubts and questions. This perspective tells you, even in those trials, you are being shaped. Don't give up. Stay with it. God is shaping you. It's true, my friends. It's true. But only a new identity can help us get this new perspective. So it is our new identity. That's where our passage today comes into play. In chapter 2. This new identity, says Peter, leads us to a collective purpose. You are, says Peter, living Stones, a temple, (laughs) look at the walls, built by individual stones, blocks, bricks. Imagine for a minute, will you? Just imagine that one of the stones has your name on it. Peter says, God is building his people. And it's a temple of praise to God. And you're an intricately important, but only one stone. Some of you may know, I've talked to a number of you about the life stage that we're in. We're we're actually building a, a new house. We sold our own house and Uh, We are literally living in a barn right now. Um, They call them barn dominiums, I hear. It's on the property of a very uh, generous person from this church, and we're living there in this small barn. It's one efficiency kind of apartment with only one bathroom, and I get at least five minutes a day in there. And... And, and, and it, it really has been a blessing and a delight, but we're looking forward, we're anticipating our new home. 
Now, when you build a new home, which I've never done, you have to pick out everything, at least if you have the contractor that we do. So over and over again, we go over to the house and he has a new thing for us to discuss and pick out. I go over every day because I'm just curious about it all and the bricks are going over here. And I thought, oh no, here we go again. We got to come over and pick out something. There's a certain way in which it stresses you out, another way in which it excites you. So Brenda comes over, and obviously I can't even come close to doing it. I don't know colors very well. If you don't know that, I'm per, per, for, the pers- for the most part colorblind. So he says, uh, you got to pick out the stain on your door and your garage so that it will bring the color of the brick together. And um, so she's struggling to try to match this, and I'm just standing by like an idiot who doesn't see it. And uh, finally, he says, uh, you, you can take this brick with you. Why don't you take the color samples, take the brick, and study them and decide what color you want your door to be. Well, we enlisted the help of some people here, actually, Cliff and Cynthia Huggins, who are architects, and they helped us pick out the color of that stain. But you know what my contractor didn't say? He didn't say, here, take your house. He said, here, take your brick. It's one of thousands of bricks that make up your house. Every brick is important, but they're not individualistic. They're there for the other brick. He didn't say all that, but that's true. So Peter says, you're living stones that build the house of God. I will say something bluntly to you, my friends. Individualistic Christianity is a ridiculous modern construct. If You were in the first century, and you said to someone, I'm a Christian, but I'm not really a part of a faith community. They would look at you like you had three eyes. Because to be Christian meant to be a part of Christian community. It meant to be one of the bricks in the edifice known as the temple of God. You, as a brick, are incredibly important. I could extract one of those blocks and it would do serious damage to this whole structure. You are incredibly important. But you're important in the context of neatly fitted stones. Each bringing its own importance. So your new identity, says Peter, is that you're a household of faith. And each of you is a a brick. He also says your new identity is that you're a chosen people. This is a theme he borrows from the Old Testament, which is everywhere in the Old Testament. God continually communicates to the people of Israel, you're a chosen nation, you're a chosen people. That doesn't mean you're better or smarter 
or faster or wiser. It just means that you're chosen by me. And since you're chosen by me, and since I've ordained you to be this chosen nation, and since I rescued you from the slavery of Egypt, which is analogous to the slavery to sin, since I parted the sea and put you here, since I gave you manna in the wilderness and water from a rock, and since I took you across the Jordan and you inherited the promised land, since I did all those things for you, it is incumbent upon you to live differently. You're not like the rest of the world. It doesn't matter what the rest of the world is doing. It doesn't matter what their standards are. I'm calling you to something else. You are special. Live according to my covenant. The same message is reiterated throughout the New Testament. Peter puts it in these words. We're we're aliens or strangers or immigrants in this world. We're only here for a time because our inheritance is eternal. We are those who, as Peter says, are called out of darkness and into glorious light. We're redeemed. We're redeemed uh, for a new kind of life. Something else that goes along with this that Peter doesn't explicitly say, but it's everywhere in every New Testament epistle in one way or another. And it's in the history of the first century church. And it's this that the New Testament says virtually nothing about how the rest of the world ought to live. Virtually nothing. It just assumes the rest of the world doesn't follow Christ. Instead of saying how the rest of the world ought to live, it says how we ought to live differently from the rest of the world. That's our calling because we're chosen. Something else he says you are besides being chosen and bricks in a wonderful temple, you're You're also holy priests. Holy priests? Feel like one? But you don't. But you are. One distinctive of the priesthood, or to be a priest, especially in the Old Testament, was that you had special access to God for the purpose of bringing others to God. It wasn't so you could have your own mystical experience and go into the holy holies where nobody else could be. It was for the purpose of bringing others to God. So by implication, Peter is saying, you're priests to bring others to God. As a matter of fact, the, the Latin word for priest is pontifex. Pontifex. I wonder to pronounce it properly. Pontifex is where we get the word pontiff. But you know what it means? It means bridge builder. Isn't that a beautiful image? You're called to be priests to bridge a gap, to be a bridge builder so people can come to God. Outside this community and even inside this community, we build bridges so people can come to God. A second thing, there could be many others that the priest does is he or she offers offerings in the Old Testament. 
offerings that are very important. Most of the time, animal sacrifices, sometimes the fruit of the land. Paul looks at that image and says, I want to reinterpret it for you. I want you to understand it differently. And when in Romans 12, he says, I want you to be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your pleasing act of worship. Don't conform to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't ask what the rules are. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can be pure and acceptable. I want you, in another word, in other words, to be a group of people who present your whole life, everything, as an act of worship. Everything. Maybe more importantly, the mundane is an act of worship. That's how I want you to live, he says. That's what priests should do. There's something else to be said about um, this whole structure, this temple. The entire temple, says Peter, was built on a foundation. Wouldn't be here if it wasn't for a foundation. This whole structure was perfectly framed by foundation and it's concrete under that carpet. For those of you who don't know the story, in 2004, before the carpet was placed in this building, we left the old sanctuary and walked to the new sanctuary as it was still under construction. And we invited the congregation to write a scripture passage that was their favorite on the floor. So wherever you are, you're standing on the foundation of Jesus Christ and his word. Not only the written word, but the living word of Christ. So Peter says the foundation actually is Jesus Christ. The building would fall down otherwise. And that foundation was rejected then and is rejected now. The foundation was dismissed then and it's dismissed now. People want to build a structure on something that is not this foundation. And that is their perfect right to do. But I've called you to something else, says Peter. I've called you to build a structure, a living structure on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And you know what, my friends, he might have said, why would you expect that if your foundation was rejected, you won't also be rejected? Why would you expect that if your foundation suffered even to the point of death, you will not also suffer even to the point of death? But why not believe this hope that the foundation that suffered to the point of death is the same foundation, Jesus Christ, who rose again from the dead and gave us our inheritance, which is eternal life? Turn to the foundation, build up the walls, be a part of it. It's your life. It's your life. So what's the conclusion of the matter? So many things could be said. I just want to see, say a couple. The first one is this. If, if this is not your inheritance, if you have not stepped into the reality that God offers to you 
and Jesus Christ. If you've not accepted Jesus Christ and experienced a new birth, it's available. It's available to you right here and right now. And I would love it more than anything this year to hear about someone who said, okay, I want to be born again. I want to be adopted by Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe that will happen today or another day. If it does, I wish you'd let me know. Maybe you'd like to explore it further and maybe you'd like to make that commitment today. And You want to talk to somebody, I would love to talk to you about it. I'd love to lead you into the new birth. The second thing I want to conclude with is this. If you have received the new birth, then stay focused on your inheritance. Stay focused on your inheritance. It's easy to let life make you forget your inheritance. It's easy for all of us to get bogged down in this present life and forget our eternal inheritance. And when we get bogged down in this present life and forget our eternal inheritance, our life is no longer defined by eternity. It's defined by materialism. So keep your focus on your inheritance. Second, since you're chosen, adopt this. Adopt your new status as a priest, a bridge builder to God. For your friends, for your neighbors, and yes, even for the person sitting next to you who already knows Jesus Christ. We build bridges so people can get to God. Nothing is more important than that. The final thing I'll say is uh, live differently and do it in community. You've been given uh, an unprecedented, almost speechless gift in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. You've also been given an unspeakable gift in the body of Christ because there's people who will help you along. And when your faith is weak, theirs will be strong. And then there'll be the opportunity for you during a time of strength to help them when they're weak. Be the people of God and live differently in community. You can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. It would be just as foolish as being a soldier in battle and leaving the troops because you're totally unprotected.
stay in community, be that individual brick in that beautiful temple of God. When we live like this, with this perspective, focused on eternity, turning our eyes always to the foundation, Jesus, when we live differently, people actually see God. I don't know if that's amazing to you, but it is to me. Well, first of all, it makes me a little nervous. But second, it reminds me that I don't have to have all the right answers, the perfect words. It means that truly evangelism is a lifestyle. It means truly that I share the good news concerning Jesus Christ by living how I live. And that's why Peter said, live the way you're supposed to live and then just be ready to tell about the hope that you have and why. What a beautiful, beautiful mandate. Live together and God will be glorified. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your word, for community, for the fact that we are not alone. Um, We pray that you will um, reinforce in us the perspective that we have an inheritance. We have an inheritance that is eternal. And if our inheritance is truly eternal, it redefines everything that is material. So all of our reality is viewed differently. And when we live according to that new inheritance, a miraculous thing happens. People see God, and he's glorified. So help us to be those chosen people of God for our world. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.